Trade Talk Live. Off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a, a beautiful day here in San Diego. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture in the organization is the most important. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. We are back live um, around the world right now, tuning in. So thank you if you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, or even live on our bridge here on our Zoom call. Um, so I'm Rick Snyder, one of the co-hosts of this fantastic not-for-profit show, where we get to explore the depths of human, digital, and social transformation. And I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge, the author of Decisive Intuition, and also proud co-host with my other amazing co-host, Af Mohotra. Af, tell us a little bit about you. Thank you, Rick. Welcome, everyone. And uh, again, a fantastic show that I'm so looking forward to. Uh, I'm Af Mohotra, one of the creators of this fantastic not-for-profit. I also happen to be a tech entrepreneur and the co-founder of Growth Enabler, um, which is a, an AI-driven insights business, and uh, just launched my foundation actually to uh, believe it or not eradicate you know hunger in the United Kingdom, uh, a developed country. We we need help here too, and uh, I'm also uh, actively involved in investing through uh, another one of my ventures called Zone Capital Advisors. So today is about uh, entrepreneurship, close to my heart, tech entrepreneurship, um, and of course a country called China. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to spin the ball over to you, Rick, to introduce our guest and let's uh, crack on, as I say. Excellent. We have a very exciting show for you today. Um, China obviously has been a very hot topic uh, um, for many years now, but we're just seeing what a global leader and impact they really have in so many different ways, financially, ecologically, uh, human rights, um, so many politically, there's so many different uh, power moves that are happening as we speak so quickly. Um, so we have an expert today, George Calhoun, who is uh, the Quantitative Finance Program Director at the Hanlon Financial Systems Center at the Stevens Institute of Technology. That's a lot to say. <laughs> He's also um, a author of many books. His most recent book is Price and Value, um, and also a speaker on all kinds of topics around finance and really is particular area around China specifically. And so we're gonna be delving deeply into what is the tech entrepreneurship future look like in China, given a lot of um, recent um, you know, famous articles and things that have been happening in the news that we'll get into today. So first of all, uh, George Calhoun, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Thank you, thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Good, so George, let's dive right in. So. Obviously, your passion and expertise has been around finance and more, re more recently, China specifically. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and how did you get involved into this particular passion? Well, real quick, I've had, uh, you would say, two careers. I had a long career in, the, in business, in the wireless technology business for about 25 or 30 years and um, a lot of very interesting technological, entrepreneur. it was entrepreneurial, uh, built companies up. Uh, and we were just starting to engage with China at the time that I 
transitioned out of that into an academic career about 20 years ago and have been involved in building up a, a series of finance-related programs at Stevens Institute of Technology. Stevens is an engineering school, a science and engineering school it is similar to Imperial College in the UK, for example. Uh, it's 150 years old, uh, so it's been doing the engineering uh, game for a long time, but finance was not in the picture until relatively recently because finance was not a high-tech business until relatively recently. It was a people business 20, 30 years ago. It was decisively a non, a low-tech people business. But today, um, as we know, it is a very intensive, uh, technology-intensive world. Uh, so we build up programs to address that. And, and that the other aspect of finance today is it's become much more interconnected. It's a global market. Uh, all the markets... Um, really are, are linked in ways that they weren't a few decades back. And the dominant, increasingly dominant linkages seem to be between the US and China in, in, many, in many ways, in many respects. So it, you know, as I've been involved in creating uh, finance programs, running a couple of research centers here uh, on, in FinTech and related topics, uh, China is, um, is almost always on the agenda and sometimes at the very top of the agenda. So I've had to become, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on China at all, but uh, I uh, am definitely a very active observer of what they're up to and um, trying to interpret and make sense of, of what's going on over there, which um, uh, isn't always 100% clear exactly what's going on. But I guess we'll get into some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's actually dive in right now into that. So, George, what is going on over there? <laughs> and, and, and where my question comes from, I'm, I'm really fascinated by like Jack Ma, for example. Um, I'm trying to imagine in the U.S. if um, all of a sudden Jeff Bezos disappeared for a while and was defunded and um, stripped of power. And, um, and then all of a sudden pulled off to, uh, the competition to government, uh, entities. Yeah. It's, it's been a, a real come down. Um, mm -hmm. so what's going on in China in the tech sector is I think a, a, a climate change, uh, or a regime change in the way that it's being regulated. And it, it's a little surprising because China was, um, has had such a success in the last 20 years in coming into the high-tech world and mm -hmm. building companies like Alibaba and Tencent and many others that um, were on the verge of becoming world-leading companies outside of China. They were already very big inside China, but you know there was a prospect, I think, uh, the trajectory was gonna be that uh, in another few years, you were gonna be mentioning uh, those Chinese players right alongside the uh, American Amazons and Apples and Facebooks. And somewhat all of a sudden, um, I would say within the last year or so, the climate has changed over there. And it looks like the government is going to be reining that in. That's a, a common uh, verb that's applied to this. The, the reining in can be pretty pretty rough. Um, they, uh, as you know, stopped the Ant, uh, um, Alibaba's spinoff, the Ant Group, their finance, their fintech group, 
was scheduled last October to have what would have been the largest public offering in the history of the world. And it was uh, stopped uh, 48 hours before it was going to go effective. Um, And nothing good has happened to Ant and Alibaba and Jack Ma really since that time. And that, you know, initially we tended to view it, I think, as a as a one-off, as something that was per- that pertained to the specific dynamics of Jack Ma and his personality and the company there, but it's now becoming clear that it's a broad campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I th- I do think that there's a big turn in the in the uh, economy and the tech sector in China that is taking place. The most recent example was the DD public offering, mm-hmm. uh, which um, took place. Uh, a couple months ago here in New York, it was a very large public offering, quite successful, apparently. And again, two days after the offering in the U.S., uh, the uh, Chinese government uh, really came down on DD, uh, prohibited them from signing, basically put a stop to their business development. Uh, they couldn't sign up new customers. They couldn't, uh, all their apps were being pulled from the stores in China, apparently, the, the mobile stores. And um, the stock has uh, collapsed. And it's, it's um, you know, it looks like uh, uh, a, a broad change across the whole tech landscape in China that um, is, is not going to be as friendly at all mm-hmm. going forward. Could you give me a sense really quick on what was the crime really in that, you know, at one point, Jack Ma was a celebrity traveling around the world, was allowed to flourish, you know, skyrocketed the two companies as he has, and then something happened and then it's never been the same since. So what was that? What happened there in that moment? Well, Jack Ma, first of all, for anyone that has followed him, he is actually the most well-known Chinese person in the world, according to various polls. Better known than Xi Jinping, better known, most living person, I should say. Confucius and Bruce Lee uh, beat him out. But um, so you're talking about somebody who was not just a tech entrepreneur, but was really a celebrity personality on a scale with, you almost have to say a Hollywood star or somebody of that sort combined with um, I mean, we have Elon Musk, we have Jeff Bezos, we have, we have had Steve Jobs. Um, if you wrap them all up together and, and add an element of charisma and uh, extravagance, uh, Jack Ma was that. So he, I think, there, you know, no one really knows. I don't want to claim that I know exactly what the motivation was behind Beijing's uh, moves to rein him in. But I think it is certainly plausible that at some point he was just representing too much of an independent power in the culture, in the tech culture. He had created, for example, a university uh, in China modeled in a loose way, but modeled on the Harvard Business School, which was intended to be a premier business education center in China. And, you know, from what I've looked at its program, it looked very innovative. It was more, as you could say, more innovative than 
any business school that I've seen in the U.S. in some of the things that they were trying to do. He said, I want to set this up. It should last 100 years. Well, they've taken that down. They've ripped the name, the, you know, the name off the wall. They are, they've, they're disestab- they, the Chinese government has decided to disestablish this um, educational institution that he was involved in creating. And, you know, I think you have to assume that that was motivated by a concern that there was a power center, an influence center. I don't think Jack Ma had any desire to um, you know, unseat anybody, uh, particularly in the Chinese world, but he represented innovation. He represented different ways of doing things. The Ant Group, which was his fintech subsidiary, was taking business from the staid old state-owned banks in China that have not been very forthcoming in providing credit to the little people in China. They support the state-owned enterprises. The state-owned banks support the state-owned enterprises with their their credit. But if you were a small business or, or a retail customer in China, you had a hard time getting credit from that from the traditional uh, banking sector in China. So that was what the Inc. Group was setting up to do. And they apparently were really um, having a great deal of success, a lot of innovation, arguably uh, outpacing a lot of the the, uh, similar fintech operations here in the United States. And to shut all that down, uh, you know, I think that's a a real uh, backward step uh, for the Chinese uh, economy and the fintech world over there. And and they all get it, you know, all the other entrepreneurs. If you go through the list of all the major entrepreneurial tech companies in China, the leaders are stepping aside. They're, you know, going to go attend to personal interests. They're going to go uh, relinquish their exact executive, active executive role and become a kind of more of an emeritus chairman or some such thing. Um, and they're doing that for a reason. I think they want to get out of the limelight. They want to, they, they've got the message that, look, Jack Ma has, for all intents and purposes, disappeared. This personality that I've just been characterizing, that every everyone in China will recognize. No one has, to my knowledge, I mean, unless it's happened in the last week and I wasn't paying attention, no one has snapped a picture of him. There are a billion, 200 million smartphones in China, right? There are, everyone has a smart, the children all have smartphones. They all can snap a picture. He's a, a very recognizable face and personality. Um, and, and we have not seen a single snapshot of him anywhere. There have been a couple of sort of staged events to, I guess, demonstrate that he is still alive. But we don't know where he is. We, we haven't heard from him on any significant business matter. You know, he has an empire that his Jack, if you want to call it Jack Ma Inc., was, uh, you know, going to be in the, in the ballpark of a trillion dollar market cap between Alibaba, the Ant Group. And so if the, if the offering had gone forward and there are a lot of people that are concerned with what's going to happen with that that uh, world and that investment and the value that he created. I, I don't think that he's been able to make a single statement about his business since he disappeared uh, 
in early November of last year. So, you know, that's a pretty, I mean, you know, in the West, I think we are used to thinking of the Chinese government and the Chinese communist world as being sort of a closed black box. And well, you know, we don't know what goes on in there, but they're trying to come into the game, the global game in finance, in the, in the economy, in the tech sector. And I think increasingly these questions are going to be hard to ignore. I wonder if part of the um, problem or the trigger event or the crime is uh, Rick called it was the fact that the ideology that was Jack Ma, Jack Ma to your point was a celebrity, but he was even more than a celebrity. He was challenging the thesis and the media attention and the airtime, the mind time and distracting maybe um, some of the citizens of the country um, from what the, the government feels is important or felt was important into business ideology of, and in fact, uh, extreme levels of capitalism, because I think he was the custodian of and the brand that um, was closest to American capitalism as you can ever imagine in every way, shape and form. You know, his uh, bordering on arrogance, I recall this interview, the most bizarre, odd interview between or face-off between him and Elon Musk, mm -hmm. a real weird, real weird conversation, mm -hmm. where he referred to, and he was at his peak, either he was having a lot of fun, or his peak of uh, whatever state he was in, uh, I think beyond flow, most definitely, where he referred to AI as Alibaba intelligence. And that's when you know you, you are, hubris is kicked in and narcissism is sort of kicked in. I wonder if that, he was leading up to, that was one of the indicators and the the ipo was just sort of the final nail in the coffin for um, self-inflicted and even with even with Didi, um uh, chung i mean i i think it's surprising it would be surprising if the chinese government didn't know that these institutions were going to go off and do an ipo surely they knew that so they almost said well dig your own grave and i told you not to but you did and um, it's a lesson for all of you to know that you are not um, owning the thesis of the mindshare. And um, that wouldn't be surprising because um, I think in terms of what China has been for the last 150 years and what, it, what it's been doing over the last um, 20 or 30 years around the world uh, is underpinned by its philosophy and its history and its dynasties and its... Um, uh, its uniqueness culturally so and capitalism was there but um, not the central theme um, so you know I wonder to what extent that's played a role my question to you though is Jack Ma is not an isolated case in the sense that of course we've got the Didi example and, and various others talk to us about Huawei because um, you've written about um, Huawei often in your in your articles that is an entity rather than a person. Well, Ant was an entity as well, but I guess the person was, it's almost like the, he was Elon first, Tesla later, um, Jack Ma first and later in terms of recognition. Um, what, what was the situation you covered with Huawei? Just wanted to get another perspective, whether this is a similar thread or different. Well, I think, yeah, Huawei is a different, uh... A different response to the the difficult relationship that any large private sector entity in China is going to have with the with the government there, oh, yeah. uh, and 
in Huawei's case, my take on their so Huawei is a wireless uh, technology company. They have um, become a spectacularly successful wireless technology company over the last 20 years. Uh, they, uh, I would say, have uh, been reined in lately by uh, the Western, some of their Western uh, customers and, and the governments in the West because of security concerns. But they are still a very powerful company and uh, doing very well in China and in a number of other markets. And as far as I know, they are not under the same kind of constraint, the same kind of constraint that uh, has been applied to Jack Ma, but they're under a different kind of constraint, I would say, because they have chosen to play along. And the reason they're in trouble, one of the reasons that Huawei has run into difficulty is that they've done, they've, they've taken some actions. They did some business with Iran. They did some business with North Korea. That make no sense from a business standpoint, except if you assume that they were being directed to do it for strategic political reasons coming from the government. And my take on looking at Huawei over the last year and a half or so is that they have been, um, they're a victim almost, you might say, of having decided to play along with the uh, CCP and with the government, with the Beijing's strategic international agenda. And that's drawn them into some situations that are now hurting them from the, on the business side. Mm. I've written about some of the things that they can and should do. I, I tend to view them as in many ways innocent of some of the charges that are being made against them, but they're not being allowed to step up and kind of prove that they're innocent because that would force them to go counter to the uh, Chinese government's position on various things. So it's, a, it's another case of how government intervention in China, the government role in China is going to distort and probably slow down and impair uh, the development of the high-tech sector there. You know, whether it's coming down hard on people like Jack Ma who were just too independent and, and too much uh, um, you know, need to be reined in in the view of Beijing or whether it's bringing somebody like Huawei into the, the strategic political agenda and yeah. in effect causing them to take steps that then hurt them with uh, Western governments and lead to their not being able to sell into markets like the UK, like increasingly like the US, like uh, uh, well, many others at this point where they're struggling to maintain a, a presence. Um, I, let me just say, I want to flip to another thing that you were saying earlier. The, um, you know, it, I don't want to, let me flip over and say on the, um, on behalf of the government's actions in a way, I don't think this is all black hat, white hat. I, this is not about a villainous government that is intent on, um, messing things up for the private sector. There's a lot of logic, or there is a logic, to many of the steps that the Chinese government is trying to take here. The ideas of data security, the ideas of um, bringing in monopolistic power, uh, of um, 
making sure that the risks that are being run by some of these new fintech entities are not going to create systemic risk. That was right. one of the first things that I, I saw as I looked at the Ant case in, in detail, is they were really creating a business model where it was very similar to the subprime mortgage scenario in the United States, where they were originating credit loans and then selling those off to the banks so that the, the state-owned banks, so that the, the banks were really taking on the risk that those loans might not, might not pay off. Mm-hmm. And the Ant Group was uh, collecting a fee for that origination process and then going about doing more and more of that. You know, and that I can see from the Chinese government, the financial regulators in the Chinese government, I can see their view. And it's a valid view that maybe there was a systemic risk that was going to build up out of that. And let's rein that in. So I don't think this is, as I said, I don't think this is black hat, white hat. I think there's, this is about a, a, an economy that is going to, I mean, the biggest picture I can draw is it's an economy that is trying to, to accomplish a hundred years of evolution in mm-hmm. 10 or 20 years. Right. And it's going to be a, a rough uh, process to some degree. Um, you know, now the latest is uh, this campaign that um, Xi Jinping has launched. What is he calling it? Common Prosperity, I think it's being called. Right. Yes, that's right. To, um, which is really addressing the fact that China, notwithstanding that it's a quote unquote communist country, has a much worse degree of inequality of income distribution than, say, the United States, where we constantly pillory ourselves over that issue. China is much worse. So there's a, um, you know, there's there there are arguments to be made for the regulatory aims that are flowing from Beijing. It's not all negative, mm-hmm. but it's very rough. You know, it, it, it's very rough. I mean, to the to the extreme extent, as you know, uh, in, if, uh, another case is Huarong, the um, um, another financial company that uh, grew too fast, did too many things, got ahead of itself, and they finally pulled in the CEO and put him in jail, and eventually executed him last January for being too greedy or corrupt and, you know, financial crimes. So, you know, this, there is a, a saying in China, which I've learned as I've gotten into this, um, what is it? The uh, kill chicken, scare monkey, I think in, is mm-hmm. what said in China. So they, uh, you know, supposedly uh, a thousand years ago, there was a, uh, a traveling uh, uh, peddler of some kind who, who had a, set, a series of you know, monkeys in cages who were being too, too rambunctious, and he decided to kill a chicken to show them what might happen to them. And apparently this worked. So the, the phrase has come into the Chinese language, I'm told. And I think that's going on too, is that there's a, some harsh uh, measures being taken against a few of these companies with the expectation that everyone else is going to be paying and starting to dial down some of their um what, what the government would like them to dial down and, and addressing some of the issues that, uh, that the government wants to highlight. So, so it's a very interesting, very complex situation. Um, but I am concerned that it's going to end up really impairing the high-tech sector there for a while. And mm-hmm. uh, 
the entrepreneurs who have made their made their fortunes are are going to be looking at how they can you know secure an escape hatch if should they need it mm. yeah in fact i'd love to double down on that uh, part of the conversation now because when i think about entrepreneurialism it, it needs that kind of support and freedom for innovation and of, of course, there's got to be regulation for safety, uh, you know, standards, that kind of thing. But obviously, too much regulation is going to kill innovation also. So you, it seems like within China, they're cannibalizing some of that. And yet they're trying to also enter the global market and be a global player. So there's going to be all these tension points along that journey. And I was, I was just reading about where uh, Xi Jinping, uh, since he's come into power, uh, there's been an increase in censorship and mass surveillance. There's been a, a deterioration of human rights. Um, he even removed the term lim limits of presidency, which is interesting. We've seen that play before. And also centralizing institutional power. So you have all that going on in the background. And at the same time, this entering the global market and um, wanting, you know, being a huge influencer, if not the biggest influencer to come so far. So how do you see this playing out, George? I'm curious with these tension points that are just hitting and colliding as we speak. Well, you didn't mention Hong Kong, which I think right. is uh, one of the right. big ones here. And so let me talk to the Hong Kong because that goes to yep. finance, which is more what I know about. Hong Kong, gosh, I want to say was uh, the second or third, uh, you know, they, they bounced around, but they were, they were a leading financial center globally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Will they be in that same position five years from now? Um, I'm inclined to think they will not. Uh, I think they are going to suffer a lot uh, in Hong Kong. They, the government will try to direct the local Chinese companies to go through Hong Kong rather than New York. That's a big part of what I think DD is about. I think they're, I think it's uh, quite likely now that two years, three years out from both sides, from both the US side I can get into the regulatory aspect there, but the, the act of the uh, accountability act that was passed in the Congress unanimously uh, last year. And from the Chinese side, I think they're going to see a pulling apart and companies in China are not going to be going public in the New York market. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's a big thing. I mean, there are two trillion, something of like $2 trillion of market cap of Chinese companies trading in New York. So you pull that out, it's um, it's significant. It's more significant for China, I think, than it is for the United States. But that that's an aspect of decoupling. Now, the hope is, the Chinese hope, I think, is that that will migrate to the Hong Kong market. But Hong Kong is uh, experiencing an exodus, according to what I read, of, uh, of people now more than they've had uh, before. Uh, there are a lot of firms that are looking at whether their presence, they can maintain their presence there uh, as the new security laws take effect. Um, so, you know, did, did that make sense? Should, you know, I, I think there's an aspect of clumsiness in the, in the picture too, you know, just just being, as I said, they're rough, but they're they're taking steps that they didn't need to take. They didn't need to, they didn't need to disestablish the China, the Hong Kong market uh, as they appear to be doing. And you know, let alone, I'm not really competent to comment on the human rights issues. I, I read about them, mm -hmm. uh, 
I, I think what I would say is that this wolf warrior uh, mentality that you see both in the diplomacy and in the um, in companies responding to problems sometimes, Huawei has been uh, kind of going along with that philosophy. Uh, you know, that's not going to win them. This is a this is a world of soft power as well as hard power. And Chinese, uh, the Chinese uh, do not seem to have soft power at the top of their list of things they want to try to work on. Mm -hmm. There was there was an interesting um, a presentation that I was invited to, I think, um, six months ago, set up by the Hoover Institute where the head of innovation for the Department of Defense in the US was presenting too. And uh, there were two or three slides he presented that caught my attention. I'm bringing this up, it's relevant, which was related to um, the United States and China, a side-by-side -side comparison on technology advancement. And uh, without going into too much detail, there was, imagine there were a list of things where China was doing um, better than the United States. That list was significantly longer than the list where America was compared to China doing, doing as, as well or uh, advancing. In, in other words, AI, nanotechnology, 5G deployments, and so on and so forth, China was uh, excelling, um, you know, without question, three, four, five years ahead or longer. So given what's going on here, and I'm not saying big tech is big tech on the commercial side and the Ant Group and others were central to that. I mean, they could, there's R&D, there is government-sponsored research and all the other stuff that goes on too. But what is, what is your view on um, the um, advancement? I'm almost thinking about it in terms of catch-up for the West. So let's, let's, let's play this scenario. So the... Chinese might believe that we are three, five, seven years ahead. We know a lot more. We have advanced um, capabilities in nanotechnology. We have analyzed, or in fact, they've got facial recognition already being run, practiced. They've learned from the machine learning errors. They, they're pretty advanced in that cycle. We are not in a democratic environment. So in their environment, they've tested it and it works well. They could argue that actually it's going to take the West a good three to five years to catch up and then deploy and then they've got democracy to deal with and loads of people are going to say, ah, this is anti-privacy and, and data, data protection and uh, look at the COVID situation with the COVID passports and so on and so forth. So they're kind of aware of that lag time. Would you say that's also part of the thought process? Because if I was sitting on the Chinese side, I might say, well, actually, don't sweat this, guys. It's all good because we're quite a few steps ahead of the West anyway. Let's sort the house out, get some common prosperity going because we lost the plot for a while, rebalance, and then we start again. Uh, just just a thought because, um, you know, that could be a perspective. Well, um, so what I'm going to say is probably going to be a little bit uh, sideways from, from some of that, but I'll start by saying that... Um, yeah, there. Are, I've seen some of those uh, Defense Department presentations, and that's uh, kind of a starting point for them to argue for uh, what they want to get out of the the uh, appropriations process. You know, if you want to, the military is going to tend to magnify the threat, as, as I I would see it. Um, I think it's a very complicated. I mean, technology is an incredibly complicated field in so many dimensions. And I don't know that I have uh, yet a point of view about whether or not there is a gap 
one way or the other way. You know, we have yeah. to be careful historically about gaps, the missile gap from mm -hmm. the Cold War period uh, that turns out not to have been a gap at all. It was the other way. But what I so I'll just say two things um, just to add a little a little counterbalance to to your points, which are, are certainly you know valid as far as they go. Um, I am in touch with um, a number of people in the AI world, the artificial intelligence world, including uh, people that I've worked with in Israel that are um, that I I think very I, I view as being very very smart about things. And I can tell you their view is, of Chinese AI is dismissive. It's not, they don't, they, they think it's kind of a paper tiger or whatever you would say that there is not uh, a Chinese uh, leadership role yet in AI, despite the fact that they're filing lots of patents and funding a lot of research effort. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I hear that from people who uh, generally impress me as being pretty smart in that field. In a field that is a little more visible to all of us, which is semiconductors, um, you know, China isn't really doing that. They're, they're lagging significantly in the semiconductor um, uh, development and manufacturing, as we know. I mean, the, the, uh, it's Intel, it's Samsung, it's TMSC. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Chinese uh, semiconductor industry has been a series of um, false starts, some bankruptcies, some, uh, you know, they're attempting to uh, import or capture, capture is the wrong word, to hire, to recruit away uh, experts out of Taiwan where they can, out of the TSMC. And I, I don't think, uh, I think it's probably over-exaggerated, this uh, sense of uh, Chinese uh, um, superiority in a number of these areas. But, you know, all I can say is that's just a, a feeling at this point. I think the technology segments is going to have its own specific story. But, um, you know, this, back to your, to the, to the earlier comment, if, if the government is now truly turning in a way to create a more hostile environment for tech development and they and their answer is going to be to fund it through government funded efforts mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure that's going to be as successful as they might like it to be mm -hmm. yeah because after all you need the commercial deployments at some point for the technology to be then part of a life cycle and used at a consumer level um, and for the betterment of your citizens, um, yeah, agreed. The 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 one additional point to that really was um, related to money. I just want to take you down a, a path, and, and we will go down crypto in a second. But um, if you look at the investment, and just wanted to work out what you've picked up in your research. So when you think about venture capital or any other forms of fiat currency. Um, or capitalization, not, we're not going into the digital money yet or crypto yet. Uh, what implications do you think that this could have, this sort of rebalancing or common prosperity agenda around this, the accessibility of money? Um, and why I ask you this question just today, I just, I have just, you know, uh, had back-to-back -back sessions. I came out of a round table at the London Stock Exchange. An interesting observation, which was related to India, 
is that this particular event and the behavior that we've seen with Ant Group and uh, the aftermath of that and the implications of that is that the, uh, uh, the London Stock Exchange and many exchanges will be looking for international companies to IPO or list or whatever, whatever level. And so the, the focus on a market like India has doubled or trebled in intensity pretty much overnight, uh, given that maybe the funnel was supposed to be from China and it's not going to be the same any longer. So there are loads of implications. I and mean, my point really is, what is your view on money movement um, and what, what, what would happen in China in terms of access to international money, FDI and so on? Well, uh, that's another very interesting uh, area. And that's one where I, I think in many respects, the Chinese government is doing some, some things right to, even though they're kind of at war, trade war, economic, uh, in an economic uh, conflict with, uh, with the US or with the West, but they are opening the financial channels, uh, I think in appropriate ways. Things like, for example, um, the credit uh, rating process in China. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the allowing, uh, I just saw the other day, BlackRock is now going to be uh, able to open its own uh, investment operation in China, wholly owned by a U.S. company for the first time. Uh, the, I believe Goldman Sachs and some of the other investment banks are also now being permitted to acquire a controlling or 100% mm-hmm. in their local Chinese. So the the older model where Westerners had to come in and have a Chinese partner and, and kind of be in a little bit of a standoff in that regard, they, they're liberalizing in that, in that vein. Um, I think, you know, China has a, a very interesting process to go through to uh, bring its currency into um, a reserve status uh, where the, it can compete with the euro, with the dollar effectively. Uh, And to do that, they're going to have to build institutions that are similar to the financial institutions in the West, which are, you know, they're characterized by transparency, by rule of law, by um, predictability, by, um, you know, honest credit assessment. Uh, And these are all things that you wouldn't say Beijing is really... um, kind of aligned to, but they seem to be understanding that they're going to have to move in that direction if they want to establish uh, themselves and their markets as uh, ready to play on the global scale. Uh, So, you know, we'll see how that goes. But yes, I think the tech industry is going to start to flow in other, through other channels. Um, India is certainly a huge tech center in the world. And I think it's going to be uh, interesting to see how that develops. I, I have to say, I, I characterize myself, I'm not an expert on China, and I'm much less of an expert on India in, in this field. So I'll, I'll defer to that and just say, I think that, yes, they will be beneficiaries of uh, the interest uh, turning towards them, perhaps because of the shutdown of some of the Chinese channels. No, Af, Af, you mentioned about, oh, do you want to follow up? Uh, no, no, I was just going to say for, for the audience listening in from different channels, if you want to uh, 
uh, comment or ask questions, uh, now is a good time so we can we can take them and, and throw them out. Uh, George, go ahead. Yeah, Af had mentioned crypto. And so, um, you know, in the press, we've seen a lot of crackdown on Bitcoin miners in China, uh, regulation happening as we speak. Um, what are you seeing in that space? Um, I've heard a few different theories. One is, you know, uh, maybe a, a government, you know, China government coin coming out and any threat to that, of course, will be challenged. Uh, other theories that I've heard, which are pretty interesting is, you know, if they influence the Bitcoin market or a cryptocurrency market to, you know, devalue, then they can buy low and sell high. So there's some interesting theories of what could be going on in different directions. Curious what you're seeing with China's relationship to cryptocurrency. Well, I think that's an example of China taking steps that um, probably make sense. Uh, I think uh, everyone, maybe some of your audience would disagree. Most people would agree that the crypto world is reaching the point where it needs to, to there needs to be some uh, stronger regulation of some aspects of what they're of their business process. And, you know, China's ta taken a big step in that direction much more decisively because of their, you know, their system. They don't have, what did you call it, after democracy stuff? They don't have the democracy <laughs> to worry about. Um, so they've taken a, a step that I think uh, makes sense to some degree. You know, the, the um, Bitcoin in particular is so... Uh, becoming it's becoming realized that it's it's not a very environmentally friendly uh, proposition mm -hmm. and you know aside from all the issues related to money laundering and and uh, involvement with uh, cybercrime um, so you know that's the first thing I would say is I think the Chinese government is is taking some steps that probably other governments are going to also be taking uh, a little bit more slowly as we work through the democratic process the, uh, the area that is looking to me most interesting there is the digital central bank currency version of crypto, if you want to say it's a version, meaning that they would be using the same technology, or generally speaking, that underlies a lot of the cryptocurrencies to create a central bank, to create a, a, a digital version of the renminbi. Mm -hmm. And I think every central bank in the world at this point is, is exploring that idea. I, I, there are a lot of questions. That's gonna be a 10 year uh, research process as I see it uh, to evolve the right answers there and the right technical solutions. Um, and it'll be very interesting to follow. And China looks like they may be one of the leaders in that. That's an area where there may be a gap, uh, mm -hmm. conceptual, a an intellectual gap to start with on how to take this technology into the central banking world and and not just central banking, but also clearing and settlement in the financial markets. We know that that was an issue that came up very much in the Robin Hood GameStop uh, yeah. event here in the United States. Um, so, you know, that that's an area where uh, I think it's going to bear some uh, some real close attention. And, and I think uh, the Chinese um, moves look positive. Um, Again, how rough are they being on the people they don't want to, uh, that they want to rein in? Um, you know, that, that's another question, but. Um, Could, um, I'm just wondering, thinking out of the box for a second, I shouldn't really be, but uh, if I was a compromised tech entrepreneur in China, I'd be doing everything I can to take, turn my uh, fiat wealth into 
uh, crypto wealth. And uh, if I if I can get out of the country, then I would. But uh, I would absolutely hedge by moving into crypto because uh, my alternative it is is that it might just get taken away from me. So well, one of the one of the, uh, one of the people that uh, one of one of the groups that's reached out to me as a result of some of the things I've written are the there's a, an industry of um, facilitators for exactly that uh, for Chinese entrepreneurs uh -huh. to okay. help them prepare um, escape plans and help them get assets uh, secured outside of the country and help them get their family taken care of and you know if and when the knock on the door comes you want to you want to have already been on the plane out if you can extra passports and all that I mean it's very you know very uh, James Bond like in a way and it's not my field but I I've talked to a few people who do this and you know it's a pretty active business evidently and you know I don't think you have uh, I don't think you have people in the UK or mm -hmm. or, or Germany or the US uh, clamoring to uh, to create escape plans in, in case of uh, government action but in China it seems to be pretty significant and if you know if, if that reflects a a change in the weather over there, um, you know, again, it could impair the, the development of the Chinese tech world. Awesome. We have some questions that have come in. Um, Rich, you want to take the first one? I'll take the second one. Yeah, we got a great question from William Dory, who's a, a fellow student at Stevens. And he asks, what should U.S. investors look for before we buy into Chinese companies after what we've seen with uh, the Chinese government do to companies like Didi, Ant Group, Alibaba to stifle them? Wow, uh, good question. I mean, it, one perspective to take is that this is a value play, that these companies, you know, the, the uh, Chinese, in, the index of Chinese companies in the US markets is down 50%, I'm gonna say roughly. The last time I looked, it was around there uh, in the last year or so. And, you know, if you form a thesis that that is overdone, that uh, the Chinese government is going to make certain statements and make demonstrations, but they don't really want to kill DD. They don't really want to kill the ant group. They don't want to really, uh, then maybe there's a, an opportunity here to, to buy, you know, when the blood runs in the street, so to speak, you, you, you buy. Um, but it does also, I think, up the ante for due diligence on any Chinese investment uh, to understand the regulatory constraints that they may be uh, exposed to there. And I, I suspect that's going to drive a lot of interesting business for consultants who are truly experts on China, which I'm not, uh, to uh, provide insight about what are the real risks and what are the, uh, the show risks, mm -hmm. so to speak, um, that, that um, investors might have to take into account. Uh, we have another question. Thank you for that. Uh, what is China doing to contribute towards the combat of climate change? Well, uh, at the moment, they seem to be talking. <laughs> um, they're still building coal-fired coal plants like crazy. But, you know, I think it, I'm going to say, I don't know how many people understand it, but I'm going to say that it's pretty clear that China is the linchpin in climate change, whether the world is going to be able to turn the corner successfully in the next 10 years or whether it's going to not be able to is going to depend on what China does. I think in Europe, in the U.S. now, 
the trends are going to are already turning and um, the emissions control and the process it, we're not going to be going backwards the stock the financial markets are um, reflecting that we've seen the the activist campaigns at Exxon the new one that's going to address Chevron the major oil companies are all talking about how they're going to have to play the play ball with this so the question and if you're standing on the, on the moon and looking at the planet earth and asking is are, is it going to be are we as a species going to be successful in turning the corner i think it's it's china to some extent india but china is um, whether they can really uh, mount a successful uh, emission reduction you know a, a environmental climate change oriented uh, policy change in the next decade is is gonna gonna tell tell the tale i think mm. okay thank you um another question from facebook uh what do you see as the biggest threats or competition from china in the fintech sector uh what should be the u.s uh, what should the u.s be doing to offset that uh, I would have said Ant, the Ant Group, was going to be the uh, big threat because they just were doing so many things so fast at such scale, very innovative, uh, and um, moving further ahead. That was a place where I could see a very clear gap between what Chinese fintech was actually accomplishing versus what is being done in the U.S. at least. But that's now been reined back in very harshly as we've been discussing so um so i don't know if there's a threat so much i mean what i'd like to think is that there's going to end up being uh, more of a cooperation in some of these areas because it's finance is a global uh, market a global business and will be one so i think um you know i'd like to think that uh, you're going to see uh, more of a cooperative uh, relationship going on but you know, there are so many uh, loose ends in the policy. You know, will the, will the U.S. government allow Chinese fintech to market in the U.S., given the exposure of, um, secure, of, of uh, consumer data and other uh, security questions that have been raised? And, and I think it's pretty unlikely that the Chinese government right now is going to allow American fintech to market. So I think there, there's a... They're going to be. Uh, they're they're going to come into being as a decoupled uh, industry, and the coupling of that industry over time is is not a clear process to me. Mm. With you, a couple of comments came in um, around the fact that, and uh, less of a question around the fact that China is also the only country with two payment currencies, internal and external, uh, and. Uh, who also use WeChat to avoid foreign currency controls for its overseas citizens. True, false? Well, I, yeah, I was going to say earlier, I mean, China has to do business in renminbi and in dollars. Uh, their dollar market is, is critical to what they do. And, and I think that's one of the factors that holds back the Chinese government from doing some of the things they might like to do in, you know, in a prideful sense. But they they really do have a need to uh, access the the dollar markets uh, and make sure that they're not um, 
not damaging that relationship. And I think that's why they stepped in to bail out now the Huarong situation uh, in particular, is that they were potentially exposing the dollar market investors there to, um, to some bad consequences that would have had a, a chilling effect on, on raising capital outside in the offshore markets. So yeah, it, it, they have a much more complicated game board to manage than, than we do in the US, I, I'd say. And um, I, it's very interesting to watch. Yeah, it reminds me of, as we finish off, just a bit of a funny story. Um, an old buddy of mine, um, we were doing business together, was married to um, a Chinese um, person. And he narrated a story where he used to go to China quite often. And on one of the visits, he, him and his sister-in-law were having a heated argument. It was like a really, really, really difficult one. And everyone's getting pretty emotional. And he said, you're not going to be believe what the argument was about, Af. I said, what was it about? And he said it was about lint chocolate, lint chocolate. And I said, okay, what about the chocolate? He said, well, she was adamant that I got it wrong, that the chocolate was not Chinese. Um, and I said, no, the chocolate is European or Swiss. She was like, absolutely not. It is Chinese chocolate. We make it in China. I've been having it since I was a kid. And so this was the, this was the argument. So um, it, it is phenomenal. It tells you a lot about, um, it tells you a lot about nations and, and how the citizens of those nations believe um, that their nation is superior or advanced in many ways. And it could go the other way as well, by the way. So uh, we just know that lint happens to come from Switzerland because we love that chocolate. But anyway, um, what a pleasure it's been to have you on the show. And thank you so much for giving us your wisdom and your knowledge. And uh, we love your articles, actually. You mm -hmm. write them so beautifully. They're provocative, they're insightful. I think a lot of us in the STL community do read them now. And um, when you jump on, hopefully you'll jump onto our STL Mavericks WhatsApp group where we have a lot of our past speakers and share some of your material and even stuff that's not released that you plan to release, that'd be cool. And, um, you know, we, we live in hope and we hope that geopolitics sorts itself out and there's an opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors and travelers around the world to go visit these great countries and we don't get caught up in the crossfire. So uh, with that, I'll hand it to, to Rick to close off the call. And um, uh, thank you again from my side, George. Yeah, George, great pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you for contributing to our audience and our reach in um, all that we discussed today. Could you share a little bit more about your most recent book, Price and Value, as well as where people can find out more about you uh, on social media, et cetera? Well, the, the book is written uh, really to just address the uh, perennial conundrum of uh, whether price and value are the same or different. Mm -hmm. And that's a question that motivates investment and motivates uh, asset pricing. And it's, it's the challenge in finance generally. Is Tesla really worth mm -hmm. what, it said, what the, the market says it's worth today? Is, are, is Bitcoin really worth mm -hmm. what the market uh, said it was yesterday? Um, and you know, I don't think that's a problem that uh, goes away, but it's it, there are a lot of different angles on it, and that's what this book is about, really. Um, and your other question was, where do you find what I do? I I write a more or less weekly column uh, online for Forbes. Uh, it would be the first place I would say, and I think a lot of the point, the pieces you're referencing, uh, came from that source. Mm -hmm. um, I will let me just say real quick, uh, we are also 
in the process, we've just been given a, a major government grant here in the United States from the National Science Foundation to create a FinTech Research Center at Stevens with several other universities as well, and a, and a whole couple, a couple dozen industry partners, including a lot of the big names. It's just launching now, and it's going to be a 10-year program, but um, that's going to have, a, uh, I think, a big impact on It's the first time that at the national level, they've ever focused a, a research center around fintech, financial science, and technology. And um, I think it's going to have a, a it's going to be a big deal for the industry as well as, of course, for our university here. Fantastic. And once again, if people want to find out, I want to learn more about George Calhoun and what he's writing about today. Mm-hmm. Where should they go? Well, the Forbes uh, link, and uh, you also any. I I'll, I'll take an email from anybody. G Calhoun, G C A L H O U N at Stevens S T E V E N S dot E D U. Great. Um, I'm pretty responsive. Thank you so much, and we'll be having some of your links on our profile speakers page, so we'll get your profile up very shortly as well. And so if, please send us any links that you want us to promote uh, with your new book or any of your work. Happy to do that and in and, and our thanks and gratitude. Thank you. So Thank George, you. a pleasure. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, all the best and let's definitely be in touch. Thank you for being part of our Straight Talk Live tribe moving forward. And lastly, uh, next week, we're going to be uh, talking to Dr. Asso, uh, who is uh, a leading uh, women, a woman in science and has done incredible work around vaccine innovation, which is obviously a very hot topic today, but we're gonna get into the actual science and what she's had to work through in the world of science, being a a female uh, leader and innovator in that space. So it's gonna be a fantastic show next week. Please tune in, Straight to Talk Live, and keep having those Straight Talk conversations in your lives. Thank you so much on behalf of Ath and I, and onward and outward, talk to you next week. Be well.